0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello,
1: folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. By the way, just to set it up, you can uh, you can hear us over the Internet. Live stream us. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. And you'll be able to get us all across the country, around the globe, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And by the by, please join us during the week on TV, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, Fox Business. And if you can't get us at 4 for some reason, just text your favorite um, nine-year-old, and uh, she will show you how to DBR the show. No problem. So we have a bunch of things to talk about today. The economy is heading towards recession, according to leading indicators. Um, J. Powell might pause. The debt talks in Washington have... All but broken down. Democrats don't want to cut spending. There's a shocker, isn't it? Democrats don't want to cut spending. Don't want any budget reforms. And um, really the biggest news this past week that I want to spend some time on today, along with these other topics, was the report from uh, Special Counsel John Durham about the so-called Russian hoax and the FBI and the CIA and Dirty Tricks and Breaking the Law. It is a remarkable report. If you haven't uh, if you haven't read it, I mean it's three hundred pages. I don't expect everybody to read it. But you ought to read about it. You ought to read about it. I would recommend my columns in the New York Sun or posted on Fox Business. Wall Street Journal editorials are very good. Uh, We will have uh, distinguished uh, attorneys and former prosecutors, Greg Jarrett and Andrew McCarthy on later in the show at the top of the next hour. Durham on the Democrats, corruption on a grand scale. Okay, corruption on a grand scale. That sums it up. And this was the FBI, the CIA, the Department of Justice, the White House, the media, mainstream media, all corrupt. Democratic corruption. Next, make, make no mistake about this. This is corruption in Democratic administrations going all the way back to Obama, and then Hillary Clinton's campaign, and then Joe Biden's administration. And I want to say something at the very outset. If you haven't heard it, I'm going to say it. And that is Donald Trump, who was the target of this during the campaign in 2016, during his administration, during his impeachment, during the nonsensical Ukraine <laughs> Donald Trump has been completely exonerated of every charge, of every major charge, of every minor charge, of every peripheral charge. And in the Durham report, in the Durham report, he says there was no actual evidence of collusion between President Trump or his campaign and Russia. Let's just repeat that. The Durham report says that the FBI lacked any actual evidence of collusion between Mr. Trump, his campaign, and Russia. And in fact, digging deeper into the Durham campaign, it actually looks like this whole fabrication, one of the great political scandals of all time, is a Russian intelligence operation. And of course, this was through the infamous Steele, dossier and all that came out of that this was a Hillary Clinton plant. the idea that Steele dossier and the various allegations and then the role of the FBI which has been involved now in two different elections 2016 2020 and God knows they may be involved in 2024 the way they're treating these whistleblowers this was a Hillary campaign plan, deliberate. Barack Obama knew. I mean, they were briefed in the Obama White House. They were briefed on this plan. Obama knew. Biden knew. They all knew. And, of course, did nothing about it. And, of course, the FBI and the CIA played along. Heads should have rolled. I mean, a lot of people lied under oath. But it was Hillary's foreign policy advisors that generated this plan and briefed President Obama. And former CIA John Brennan offered briefings. Former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, FBI Director James Comey, they all heard about it, they all knew about the phony campaign. They all knew the Steele dossier was phony. Remember, Steele was working for the Clinton campaign. This was financed by the Clinton campaign. And the Durham report covers it very well. Give them a lot of credit. Give them a lot of credit. And all these FBI people, names that uh, at one time or another were familiar in the news, Kevin Smith, who... Doctored and phonied up a FISA warrant. Lisa Page, her boyfriend, Peter, Peter Strzok. And the, and the mainstream media with their Pulitzer Prizes, the New York Times and the Washington Post, that should give it back. Give the Pulitzer Prizes back. Give a Pulitzer Prize to Miranda Devine of the New York Post. Who... Uh, Blew the whistle on the Hunter Biden laptop, which is really not part of the Durham campaign, but it came out. The Hunter Biden laptop, the FBI had this laptop a year, a year before political operative Anthony Blinken, who later went on to be secretary of state. He was a dirty trickster. And we learned that just more recently. Lincoln told Morell, Mike Morell, a former CIA deputy, to put together a letter that argued the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post, broken by uh, Miranda and others in the Post, This was a phony Russian disinformation. 51 former intel operatives, including, of course, John Brennan. (laughs) I mean, really? And the FBI played along? That was in the 2020 campaign, before the uh, second debate between Trump and Biden. This is part of this broader story of FBI corruption and CIA corruption. helping to destroy American democracy. And, of course, interfering with our presidential elections. And Lord knows what else This, these clowns have done. Lord knows what else these thugs have done. This guy Blinken, who's, or, you know, he's going to be in such deep trouble. He will be subpoenaed in front of co- Congress. He's already lied before Congress. And as a political str- trickster and longtime Joe Biden confident, he winds up being Secretary of State which is the top job in the uh, American government, in the cabinet. America's top diplomat. Incredible story. All these guys lied. Polls show, you know, a lot of polls show if people had known the Hunter Biden laptop with all of its corruption on it, if that were real, they would have voted for Trump, not Biden. So it could have swung the whole election. This is the CIA and the FBI operating in favor of a Democratic party, candidate, remarkable stuff, all this has now come up, all of this has now come up, and uh, I want to talk about it today, I want to spend some time talking about it today. Trump was completely exonerated, okay, completely exonerated. Corruption on a grand scale, there's no other way to put it. And now, one question that I want to explore today on this, which hasn't been solved yet, is how do we keep the FBI and the CIA? I want to focus more on the FBI, but how do we keep the FBI out of the next election in 2024? Because you're seeing, you know, the hearings held this past week by Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan about these whistleblowers who have been punished. Many of them are political, conservative whistleblowers in the FBI. They get special immunity. There are laws protecting them. And the FBI has gone ahead and punished them, moved them out of the headquarters, into far-flung offices. In some cases, preventing them during a move, but their stuff was in storage, they couldn't even get it. Babies couldn't even get their clothing. They were treated like dirt. Because they have information and had information about FBI corruption down through the years or about FBI mishandling cases, not just the Trump-Russian hoax case, but other cases. And more recently, information concerning this Hunter Biden corruption. You know, you've got every member, all all of Joe Biden's Family and close friends, all of Hunter Biden's family and close friends have these LLCs, you know, they're chartered as small businesses, set up, I mean, you know, wives, ex-wives, cousins, uncles, college roommates, you name it. There's about a dozen of them or more, there may be as many as 20 of them. People are investigating this. Jim Comer's investigating this. Jim Jordan's investigating this. Great patriots that they are. And the FBI is treating them like dirt, burying them, firing them, stopping their pay, even though they should be legally immunized. So some of them are coming forward to talk about this. And again, we see the corruption inside the FBI. You tell the truth in the FBI, you get punished. If you tell the so-called truth that implicates Democrats, you get punished. If you tell the truth that implicates Republicans, you're rewarded. What is it all about? Where's the G-men? Where's the nation's top police force? What was Jim Comey doing? What was Robert Mueller doing? Why weren't they investigating? Why were they fixing warrants and FISA? foreign intelligence court that was set up many years ago during the height of the war against terror set up by George W. Bush. I don't uh, disagree with W. about that. I'm saying what these guys did is perverted it. Perverted it. One thing after another. This is one of the worst episodes. You know, the FBI was under fire many years ago. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover started out, I guess, as an honest G-man and founded the FBI, but he became corrupt. And then, of course, during the Nixon years, FBI corruption was rampant. But after hearings and... I remember William Webster, Judge William Webster, who actually was a Jimmy Carter appointee, I believe he was reappointed by Ronald Reagan. He set the agency straight. But this... uh, The entire FBI should be on trial. Let me just repeat this. Donald Trump was completely exonerated for these Durham reports. The left-wing media won't deal with it. I'm sorry about that. But that is the reality of the Durham report. And this guy Durham is solid, straight, straight. Strong backed. Cautious took a long time. There was never any actual evidence of collusion between Trump or his campaign and Russia. Made up stories, one after another. And the cover up was protected by the FBI. Trump exonerated. And it will give Mr. Trump, whoever whoever you're for out there, you may be for Trump, you may be for DeSantis, you may be for somebody else. But it will give Trump a lot of power and momentum as the GOP presidential primary heats up. It gives him tremendous momentum. And it raises the question regarding the FBI and the Justice Department and other agencies about these other judicial, these lawsuits and so forth that look like weapon, politicalization, weaponization against Donald Trump and Republicans in general. And Republicans in general. But what I want to explore, in addition to all of this, is how to keep the FBI out of the next presidential elections and presumably presidential elections beyond that. That's the key point. Because it isn't the rank-and-file FBI agent. It's the people running the agency, the so-called seventh floor at the old FBI building in Washington, D.C. They are the liberal Democrats. They are the ones who have undermined our law and our democracy. They are the ones who acted crookedly During the whole Russian hoax. And since then. They have to be cleaned out. We must totally clean house. I don't want to get rid of the FBI. I don't want to destroy the FBI. I want the FBI to be the FBI. That's what I want. I want the FBI to be the FBI. The nation's top cop. I want them to live up to the virtues and principles of their charter. I want them to become patriots, but there has to be a massive house cleaning in the FBI. Not one or two people. Not new regulations. Individuals have to be taken out of there I don't know whether it's 50 people or 100 people, but all these stories, if you look and read in the Durham report, you see time and time again people on the so-called seventh floor, the headquarters, the top brass, interfering even with what the rank and file were doing regarding these investigations that Durham describes. middle level people going directly to people on the 7th floor bypassing their immediate superiors in order to run roughshod over law and order because of their democratic left wing biases I want the FBI to be a great policing agency Lord knows we need law and order in this country in the cities particularly we need them to do their job. This
0: is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello,
1: folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. By the way, just to set it up, you can... Uh, you can hear us over the internet, live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com, larrycudlowshow.com And you'll be able to get us all across the country, around the globe, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And by the by, please join us during the week on TV, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, Fox Business. And if you can't get us at 4 for some reason, just text your favorite um, 9-year-old. And uh, she will show you how to DVR the show. No problem. So we have a bunch of things to talk about today. The economy is heading towards recession, according to leading indicators. Um, Jay Powell might pause. The debt talks in Washington have all but broken down. Democrats don't want to cut spending. There's a shocker, isn't it? Democrats don't want to cut spending. Don't want any budget reforms. And um, really the biggest news this past week that I want to spend some time on today, along with these other topics, was the report from uh, Special Counsel John Durham about the so-called Russian hoax and the FBI and the CIA and dirty tricks and breaking the law. It is a remarkable report. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't read it, I mean, it's 300 pages. I don't expect everybody to read it. But you ought to read about it. You ought to read about it. I would recommend my columns in the New York Sun or posted on Fox Business. Wall Street Journal editorials are very good. Uh, We will have uh, distinguished uh, attorneys and former prosecutors, Greg Jarrett and Andrew McCarthy on later in the show at the top of the next hour. Durham on the Democrats, corruption on a grand scale. Okay? Corruption on a grand scale. That sums it up. And this was the FBI, the CIA, the Department of Justice, the White House, the media, mainstream media, all corrupt. Democratic corruption. Next, make make no mistake about this. This is corruption in Democratic administrations going all the way back to Obama. And then Hillary Clinton's campaign and then Joe Biden's administration. And I want to say something at the very outset. If you haven't heard it, I'm going to say it. And that is Donald Trump, who was the target of this during the campaign in 2016, During his administration, during his impeachment, during the nonsensical Ukraine. Donald Trump has been completely exonerated of every charge, of every major charge, of every minor charge, of every peripheral charge. And in the Durham report, in the Durham report, he says there was no actual evidence of collusion between President Trump or his campaign and Russia. Let's just repeat that. The Durham report says that the FBI lacked any actual evidence of collusion between Mr. Trump, his campaign, and Russia. And in fact, digging deeper into the Durham campaign, it actually looks like this whole fabrication one of the great political scandals of all time it was a Russian intelligence operation, and of course this was through the infamous Steele dossier and all that came out of that. This was a Hillary Clinton plant. The idea that Steele dossier and the various allegations, and then the role of the FBI which has been involved now in two different elections, 2016, 2020, and God knows they may be involved in 2024, the way they're treating these whistleblowers. This was a Hillary campaign plan, deliberate. Barack Obama knew, I mean, they were briefed in the Obama White House. They were briefed on this plan. Obama knew, Biden knew, they all knew. And, of course, did nothing about it. And, of course, the FBI and the CIA played along. Heads should have rolled. I mean, a lot of people lied under oath. But it was Hillary's foreign policy advisors that generated this plan and briefed President Obama Former CIA John Brennan offered briefings. Former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, FBI Director James Comey, they all heard about it. They all knew about the phony campaign. They all knew the Steele dossier was phony. Remember, Steele was working for the Clinton campaign. This was financed by the Clinton campaign. And the Durham report covers it very well. Give them a lot of credit. Give them a lot of credit. And all these FBI people, names that uh, at one time or another were familiar in the news, Kevin Kleinsmith, who doctored and phonied up a FISA warrant, Lisa Page, her boyfriend Peter, Peter Strzok, And the, and the mainstream media with their Pulitzer Prizes, the New York Times and the Washington Post, that should give it back. Give the Pulitzer Prizes back. Give a Pulitzer Prize to Miranda Devine of the New York Post. Who, uh, blew the whistle on the Hunter Biden laptop. Which is really not part of the Durham campaign, but it came out. The Hunter Biden laptop, the FBI had this laptop a year, a year before political operative Anthony Blinken, who later went on to be Secretary of State. He was a dirty trickster. You know, we learned that just more recently. Blinken told Morell, Mike Morrell, a former CIA deputy, to put together a letter that argued the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post, broken by uh, Miranda and others in the Post. This was a phony Russian disinformation. 51 former intel operatives, including, of course, John Brennan. I mean, Really? And the FBI played along. That was in the 2020 campaign, before the uh, second debate between Trump and Biden. This is part of this broader story of FBI corruption and CIA corruption. Helping to destroy American democracy. And, of course, interfering with our presidential elections. And Lord knows what else this these clowns have done Lord knows what else these thugs have done this guy Blinken he's going to be in such deep trouble he will be subpoenaed in front of Congress he's already lied before Congress and as a political trickster and longtime Joe Biden confident he winds up being Secretary of State which is the top job in the uh, American government in the cabinet America's top diplomat incredible story All these guys lied. Polls show, you know, a lot of polls show if people had known Hunter Biden laptop with all of its corruption on it, if that were real, they would have voted for Trump, not Biden. So it could have swung the whole election. This is the CIA and the FBI operating in favor of a Democratic party candidate. Remarkable stuff. All this has now come up. All of this has now come up. And uh, I want to talk about it today. I want to spend some time talking about it today. Trump was completely exonerated. Okay? Completely exonerated. Corruption on a grand scale. There's no other way to put it. And now, one question that I want to explore today on this which hasn't been solved yet, is how do we keep the FBI and the CIA? I want to focus more on the FBI, but how do we keep the FBI out of the next election in 2024? Because you're seeing, you know, the hearings held this past week by Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan about these whistleblowers who have been punished. Many of them are political conservative whistleblowers in the FBI. They get special immunity. There are laws protecting them. And the FBI has gone ahead and punished them, moved them out of the headquarters into far-flung offices. In some cases, preventing them during a move, but their stuff was in storage, they couldn't even get it. Babies couldn't even get their clothing. They were treated like dirt. Because they have information and had information about FBI corruption down through the years or about FBI mishandling cases. Not just the Trump-Russian hoax case, But other cases, and more recently, information concerning this Hunter Biden corruption, you know, you've got every member, all of of Joe Biden's family and close friends, all of Hunter Biden's family and close friends have these LLCs, you know, they're chartered as small businesses, set up, I mean, you know, Wives, ex-wives, cousins, uncles, college roommates, you name it. There's about a dozen of them or more, maybe as many as 20 of them. People are investigating this, Jim Comer's investigating this, Jim Jordan's investigating this, great patriots that they are. And the FBI's treating them like dirt, burying them, firing them, stopping their pay, even though they should be legally immunized. So some of them are coming forward to talk about this. And again, we see the corruption inside the FBI. You tell the truth in the FBI, you get punished. If you tell the so-called truth that implicates Democrats, you get punished. If you tell the truth that implicates Republicans, you're rewarded. What is it all about? Where's the G-men? Where's the nation's top police force? What was Jim Comey doing what was Robert Mueller doing? Why weren't they investigating? Why were they fixing warrants and FISA foreign intelligence court that was set up many years ago during the height of the war against terror set up by George W. Bush? I don't uh, disagree with W about that. I'm just saying what these guys did is perverted it, perverted it. One thing after another. This is one of the worst episodes. You know, the FBI was under fire many years ago. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover started out, I guess, as an honest G-man and founded the FBI, but he became corrupt. And then, of course, during the Nixon years, FBI corruption was rampant. But after hearings and... I remember William Webster, Judge William Webster, who actually was a Jimmy Carter appointee. I believe he was reappointed by Ronald Reagan. He set the agency straight. But this, uh, the entire FBI should be on trial. Let me just repeat this. Donald Trump was completely exonerated for these Durham reports. The left-wing media won't deal with it. I'm sorry about that. But that is the reality of the Durham report. And this guy Durham is solid, straight, strong-backed, cautious, took a long time. There was never any actual evidence of collusion between Trump or his campaign and Russia. Made-up stories, one after another. And the cover-up was protected by the FBI. Trump exonerated. And it will give Mr. Trump, whoever whoever you're for out there, you may be for Trump, you may be for DeSantis, you may be for somebody else, but it will give Trump a lot of power and momentum as the GOP presidential primary heats up. It gives him tremendous momentum. And it raises the question regarding the FBI and the Justice Department and other agencies about these other judicial, these lawsuits and so forth that look like weapon politicalization, weaponization against Donald Trump and Republicans in general. And Republicans in general. But what I want to explore, in addition to all of this, is how to keep the FBI out of the next presidential elections, and presumably presidential elections beyond that. That's the key point. Because it isn't the rank-and-file FBI agent. It's the people running the agency, the so-called seventh floor the old FBI building in Washington, D.C. They are the liberal Democrats. They are the ones who have undermined our law and our democracy. They are the ones who acted crookedly during the whole Russian hoax. And since then, they have to be cleaned out. We must totally clean house. I don't want to get rid of the FBI, I don't want to destroy the FBI. I want the FBI to be the FBI. That's what I want. I want the FBI to be the FBI, the nation's top cop. I want them to live up to the virtues and principles of their charter. I want them to become patriots, but there has to be a massive house cleaning in the FBI. Not one or two people Not new regulations. Individuals have to be taken out of there. I don't know whether it's 50 people or 100 people, but all these stories, if you look and read in the Durham report, you see time and time again people on the so-called seventh floor, the headquarters, the top brass, interfering even with what the rank and file were doing regarding these investigations that Durham describes. Middle-level people going directly to people on the seventh floor, bypassing their immediate superiors in order to run roughshod over law and order because of their democratic left-wing biases. I want the FBI to be a great policing agency. Lord knows, we need law and order in this country. In the cities, particularly. We need them to do their job. This
0: is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here.
1: Now, here's Larry Kudlow. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we welcome to the show Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of uh, Kansas. By the way, it's Dr. Senator Roger Marshall. I don't think I knew that exactly. Anyway, Senator Marshall, welcome. Larry, great to be on with you again. We've
2: got a lot happening, don't we?
3: What? Uh, <laughs>
1: uh, what, uh, what kind of doctor are you? I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist. Oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. I I don't think I knew that. (laughs) I don't think I knew that. uh,
3: For 25 years of my life, I delivered a baby most every day. The greatest honor of my entire life was that magic moment of giving a crying baby to a new
1: mom and dad. Uh, Just uh, an incredible life. I've, I've been blessed to live. Well, that's a wonderful thing. God bless. Terrific stuff. So, Senator Marshall, <clears throat> I've been talking about um, I've been talking about John Durham's report, Donald Trump's exoneration, but most of all is the corruption inherent in the FBI. I would include the CIA, but I'm kind of more focused on the FBI right now with respect to the Russian hoax. There was no evidence of anything done, and <clears throat> I want to get your thought on that. And then I want to move on to the issue of how we can clean up the FBI, because this is really important. I'm very concerned that the FBI, which has interfered in the 2016 election, interfered in the 2020 election, along with the CIA, may have thrown the 2020 election against Trump and toward Biden, that they may do the whole thing again. But first, Senator, uh, what's your thoughts on the Durham report?
3: Well, Larry, I think you're off. ed nailed it. Let's make the FBI great again. A mm. uh, physician, one of my senior physicians once told me early in my practice, if a physician loses their reputation, you never get it back. Mm. The FBI mm. has lost their reputation. My dad was a police officer, chief of police for 25 years. We had the most reverence for the FBI. They were the gold standard for law enforcement agencies across not just the country, but across the world. We've lost that reputation. There is absolutely corruption at the highest levels in the FBI, and, and they're, they're the ones that are colluding. They were colluding with the Justice Department. They were colluding with the Obama-Biden White House as well. But the mainstream media just uh, says, oh, this was a nothing burger. There was nothing in the Durham report. That's what maybe disturbs me as much as anything.
1: You know, one of the things, or many things, but one of the things that just burned me up was the information that uh, this was a plot, a plan, a plot hatched by the Clinton presidential campaign, the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, and that the White House, uh, the Obama White House, including Biden, including uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, they were all briefed on it. They knew about it. And then, of course, uh, the FBI helped enforce it uh, from one to another. But uh, it's remarkable to me, and they all kept silent. Uh, I don't know, to this day, I don't think Obama's ever said anything about it. Um, But this was at the very highest levels of our government. And I just find that to be quite remarkable. And the other thing, um, Roger Marshall, that I want to mention is – uh the, the the idea the idea that there was never any evidence whatsoever never any evidence whatsoever of collusion it was all a political dirty trick and when you think about what we had to go through with Trump and the attacks during the campaign, and then during his administration, and ultimately his impeachment—that's how far this dirty trick went. I just find that in, at, utterly incredible.
3: Right, Larry, and and why hasn't the national media asked President, former President Obama, about this? Why haven't they asked President, Vice President, then uh, Biden, about this? Uh, we've not talked about the FISA court application either, yes. and and I think that that's people are are missing a point here PISA application allows them to spy on on people to higher levels and when you start abusing that and the justice department colluding with the fbi basically they used a newspaper report that the fbi created mm-hmm. and then they then they circle back and say based upon this newspaper report that we planted we want to be able to spy on the on the uh, on the Trump and Trump folks as well, and then later they use that trick in the in the COVID cover up as well, and that's a story for a different day. But this is a theme. To your point, this is a theme. This is not just this is the tip of the iceberg. We need to clean out the FBI. So one of the things
1: that occurs to me watching all this and reporting on all this, um, uh, you've got. The Jim Jordan hearings this week, what were they, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, interviewing uh, some of these FBI whistleblowers, uh, some retired, some still around, and um, how they attempted to call attention to irregularities or law-breaking or other problems, other process problems, And they were smashed. I mean, basically conservative whistleblowers, but in some cases, not just politically conservative, just people that saw lawbreaking and how the top brass in the FBI treated them so badly. And so I'm looking at this, Senator Marshall, as a leading indicator of God knows what in the 2024 election. What will the FBI do next if they're not cleaned out?
3: Yeah, I, that's a great question, Larry. But, but again, to your point, this is the swamp. The Obama administration did an incredible job of placing folks into uh, the FBI, the Department of Agriculture, uh, the, the FDA, all those places. Those folks have risen to the top levels now. And then they're pushing out folks maybe with a more conservative approach and I hate to use the word conservative, I think it's a traditional American patriotic approach, Mm -hmm. are being pushed out. Uh, So all we can do is keep shining a a light on them. I'm not sure on the House side what they can do to work with the the budget issues. Uh, As we are confirming people for some of these higher spots in the Senate side, we can keep putting pressure as well. But I don't underestimate exactly what you're talking about. Well,
1: my thought is that I don't um – Look, when I served in the Trump administration, uh, I sat, one of my jobs, I sat on National Security Council, um, I dealt with the FBI and the CIA for that matter, but um, I'm concerned that it's going to take, the only way out of this, here, I don't want to destroy the FBI, I don't want to defund the FBI. I want the FBI to be very strong. As I said in the article, I want it to be great again. But I don't think there's any way out of this, Senator Marshall, unless we have a very strong Republican president. If Biden's reelected, there's no hope of cleaning out the FBI or the CIA. We're going to need a change in administrations. We're going to need a strong, strong president to clean house on the so-called seventh floor of the FBI, right? It's not the rank-and-file agents that are doing this stuff. It's the people at the top who have a very liberal democratic bias. You're going to need a strong president, it seems to me.
3: Larry, leadership is so important, and it's in such short supply. Uh, We'll need, uh, you know, at at every level, we'll need strong leaders to be able to deal with these people and start, uh, in investigating them and run them out. That's what we have to do. You and I have seen it in other agencies where we've got to just run out the, the bad people. And to your point, though, the FBI agents out out in the field that I've met with have been nothing but incredible human beings. We've mm-hmm. been working with them hand in glove on the fentanyl issues in, in Kansas. They are great men and women. Uh, this seems to be at the highest levels and particularly in that field office in in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, that's it. I think that's the tricky part. What, if anything, is going on in the Senate to follow up on the Durham report and to look at whistleblowers and to look at the FBI? Is there anything going on?
3: Larry, you got me there. I think that we are just living from crisis to crisis, and I don't know whether this is on purpose or this is just the way this administration manages but when you're when we have a southern border, the most immediate uh, national security threat to our to our country going on on the one hand, then we have our national debt crisis and our debt ceiling crisis, the bigger long term threat to this country uh, going on. There's really not much room for much in between. It feels like.
1: Yeah. So nobody wants to hold hearings on this in the Senate. I'm I'm not surprised. Democrats really don't want to. I'm oh, no. surprised. I mean, you would think. I'm just speculating here, I'm sort of wandering, but you would think there would be some Democrats who would have the same view of the importance of a straight, honest, law-abiding FBI. I mean, it's a pretty, FBI is a very important institution, and you know, your, your comment at the top here. Uh, When doctors lose their reputation, they can't get it back. When the FBI loses its reputation, it's going to be awful hard to get it back. I mean, the FBI was in a web of corruption during the Nixon years. That was a problem. But eventually, under William Webster, it got its reputation back. But now this stuff coming out, there's going to be follow through. uh, I'm surprised there aren't some Democrats I mean, not all Democrats are bad or evil. There are some good Democrats out there. Some of my best friends are Democrats. I was a Democrat (laughs) 50 years ago. (laughs) I worked for Ronald Reagan. He was a Democrat once. Trump was a Democrat once. There's got to be a couple of good ones out there. (laughs)
4: Larry,
3: Larry they are, but it's about prioritizing our time. In the Senate, uh, just like your job, you have to prioritize what can we get done today. And we're living from crisis uh, to, to crisis right now. And it would take leadership on the Democrat side to do this and say what you want to about the Democrat Party. Uh, They're even in shorter supply of leadership, people willing to stand up and do the right thing. I would think someone like an Angus King, uh, some people, some senators in purple states would like to do this. But to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee is Dick Durbin, a good friend, a a person that I'm able to work with. And uh, it would be an interesting conversation for for, uh, me to have with him to say, where are you on this? Because I do think deep down inside – we all want a stable FBI. We want our, our basic rights protected. But there is just simply not much oxygen left in in D.C. to get beyond this debt crisis.
1: Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Dur- Durbin's the head of judiciary, is that it? Yes, sir. That, that is correct. Yep, yep, yep. When I was a uh, host at CNBC years ago, I interviewed Dick Durbin a couple times. I actually thought he was a pretty decent guy. I know he's big, you know, a big liberal Democrat, but still... I thought he was a pretty interesting guy. What, um, Senator Marshall, what's doing in the Senate about the border collapse? I mean, we haven't seen any substitution for Title 42. There's no Remain in Mexico. There's no Build the Wall. There's no change in catch and release. Now the illegal migrants are filtering through the interior of the country, and um, we can't handle them. What's uh, happening there? Anything interesting?
3: Well and unfortunately once again not Larry again your listeners I understand that this administration wants this crisis they want an open border they want 10,000 people crossing our border every day for some political reasons but the big concern is national security this is the number 1 national security threat our nation faces I took a group of senators to the border the eve uh, as title 42 ended and uh, we we got there we saw hundreds of people crossing the border busload after busload of people being shipped uh, to a holding holding center. Those holding centers had been emptied out of 3,000 people a, as well. 3,000 gotaways the day before we got there. 3,000 gotaways, uh, 90 Chinese nationalists crossing the border every day in China. We have no idea how many terrorists and criminals, uh, 300 Americans dying every day from fentanyl poisoning. How does Joe Biden sleep at night? How could he possibly look at those parents and brothers and sisters and friends in the eyes and say there's 300 American young Americans dying every day from fentanyl poisoning, which is crossing our southern border? How does the man sleep at night? I don't know.
1: You know, uh, with all of the talk, I mean, when the day came and Title 42 ended and people crossed the border and so forth and they had been massing on the border, sort of lost in all this is that the Bidens never did and still haven't substituted anything for Title 42 or come up with any decent border control policies or sought to deal with the cartels that are running the border. In other words, no. nothing's changed. I mean, it just no. they're just sort of sitting back, allowing them to cross – And then I guess they're getting sent around the country. But there's no new policy. Again,
3: Larry, you nailed it. I just love your common sense approach. Every time I've been to the border, this is my fourth time, I'll ask the Border Patrol officers, what can we do to help you? The first three times we need more, you know, send the National Guard, send us troops, send us nurses, send us doctors. But this time what they've asked for is policy. What, he, what they said: We need we need the Biden administration to go back to the previous administration's policies. The remain in Mexico policy. Stop the catch and release. That's the only thing that's going to stop this mm. this beacon of, of come one, come all, come get your free uh, Medicaid, your your free food, free health care. Everything's free in America. Come today, come yesterday. Yeah. So they want a policy change, to your point, not more resources. Yeah. Of course, they would love to to secure the border more efficiently. But the, yesterday, Joe Biden could change this yesterday with his pen by just renewing some type of a remain in Mexico policy.
1: That's it, the remain in Mexico policy. Uh, Senator Roger Marshall, we're going to take a quick break. If you can give us a little more time on the other side. I want to yeah. talk about the debt ceiling and, and what you think about that and what's going on in the Senate, because we're not hearing a thing from the Senate side. We're talking with Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back, folks.
0: Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm talking with uh, Senator Roger Marshall of the great state of Kansas. And, uh, Senator, um, the The debt talks have broken down in the House. Um, I know they did come back. They had a 10-minute meeting yesterday morning, and then they walked out. Uh, Garrett Graves led the uh, House people out because the Democrats just wouldn't do anything. Uh, They did get back at 6.30 last night, but nothing really is going on there. And, I mean, this is not going to be a shocker to you. But, I mean, at the bottom of this, I mean, I've been through some of these types of negotiations. And many years ago in the Reagan years, I was a deputy at OMB, so I know a little bit about the budget. The Democrats don't want to cut spending, okay? They don't want to cut spending. Now, that may not be breaking news, but that's at the root of this whole problem. And they also, by the way, don't want to give permitting to fossil fuels. And they also completely rejected the idea of stopping the um, cancellations of student loans, and they don't want to stop any of the greeny tax credits in the misnamed uh, inflation reduction bill. But the heart of these negotiations, and I've got some moles inside them, people that used to work for me when I was in the White House, uh, they, don't, they don't want the spending caps, they don't want 10 years, They don't want $5 trillion of reductions. They don't want to limit the frenzied spending of the Biden administration. I mean, that's at the heart of this. So I guess uh, I'll try to make a question here. The Freedom (laughs) Caucus is saying very clearly, stay with the McCarthy plan. This is very interesting. And what's the Senate going to do? Where's the Senate plan? Chuck Schumer, you know, is always criticizing, but he's got nothing. So is there anything going on in the Senate?
3: Well, thankfully, there's not, Larry. Any deal that Kevin McCarthy can cut with Joe Biden is going to be better than any deal we can get in the Senate. So I'm proud the Senate has stuck together, kept their mouth shut, and that gives Kevin McCarthy the ground cover, the air cover that he needs. People need to realize the only voices that matter, again, are Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy. The ball is in Joe Biden's court. The pressure is on him in these negotiations right now. And we need to keep coming back to why this is an important fight, why this is so important. This is important to my children and grandchildren. Our $31 trillion national debt is the number one long term threat to this nation. It's a threat to our national security, our economy. It's a threat to building roads and bridges in the future. It's just a threat to good schools. All those things. And to your point, the Democrats want to spend money, spend money, and raise taxes on on the wealthy and, and people that are successful. So this is our one time when we're in the minority in the Senate that we can use this as leverage because they need 60 votes on the Senate to get something across the finish line. So they're going to need some of us. Uh, we're staying together on this. This is a sword we're going to die on. We're mm-hmm. not going to blink. Joe Biden has to come to the table and give us some of these things that you just went through, including work requirements.
1: Well, they're fighting work requirements, too. They, they, I mean, there's the welfare work requirements, by and large, are still in place. The big problem is the food stamps, SNAP. They're fighting on that on uh, various eligibility exemptions. But the the big one, the big nut, is Medicaid, which yes, has become such a gigantic uh, spender in the budget. And um, Democrats don't—I mean, Biden doesn't want to include Medicaid in the work requirements. So that's that's right. another sticking point.
3: Yeah, if we could just talk about that just for a second, Larry. I, I would love for you to guess how many people you think are on Medicaid, but I'll give you the answer. Eighty-five million Americans wow. are on Medicaid right now. Eighty-five million. Wow. Half of America's children are on Medicaid. And, look, you and I are compassionate people. I'm a physician. I've, I volunteer at clinics, do everything I can to help people. But Medicaid's the most broken government system we have. Instead, I'm trying to work towards building up community health centers, uh Bernie Sanders and I are, are working on that, but think about the work requirement we're asking for. You're, you are you don't have to have a work requirement if you have children. And all we're asking is 20 hours a week, 20 hours either working or getting an education. We as conservatives need to lean into this. Having a job is a great thing. It it creates self-respect, dignity, all those things. We should celebrate somebody getting a job. And that's what's going to lift those children out of poverty is if their parents have a job. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very reasonable – I think it's the right thing to do. Not only reasonable, it's the right thing to do. I don't understand why Democrats want, want to keep people in poverty.
1: Yep, there's no opportunity to climb the ladder of success if you're living on government benefits, that is for sure. Anyway, Senator Roger Marshall, we appreciate you coming on today. Good luck. We'll talk some soon, get you on back on the TV show. Folks, I'm Kudlow, and on the other side of the break, we've got Greg Jarrett and Andrew McCarthy. I'm going to talk some more about this FBI-CIA problem and the Durham report. It's just so important.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and it's a great pleasure to be with you. We're going to bring in two very distinguished attorneys, former prosecutors, and actually, I think Greg Jarrett was a defense lawyer, too. But anyway, we've got Greg Jarrett. Greg Jarrett is a Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author. His book, Trial of the Century, his newest book, released date May 30th, about the Scopes monkey trials. Phenomenal story. And Andrew McCarthy, former district U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, a Fox News contributor, National Review uh, contributing editor, National Review Institute, and his recent book, Ball of Collusion. The plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency, boy, you guys, you know the stuff you wrote before is very apocryphal. John Durham, John Durham, you know what? John Durham has exonerated Trump, but he's exonerated your writings. <laughs> oh. Think of that. He's absolutely- somebody
2: had to.
5: Somebody had to excuse my writing, so I'm glad <laughs> to hear it finally happened.
1: It's terrific <laughs> stuff. So there's a bunch of things I'd like to talk about. Um, Uh, Andy, let me start with you, Andy McCarthy. The FBI aided and abetted this whole Trump collusion scandal. They aided it and abetted it. I mean, the role of the FBI is something I've tried to focus on on the TV show this past week. uh, And I'm very, very worried. You know, they've interfered in 2016. They interfered in 2020. God knows they may interfere again in 2024. Uh, I don't want to absolve the CIA, but I'm more focused on the FBI. So tell us, they aided and abetted the Russian hoax.
5: Yeah, Larry, I think that Durham did a very good report. It's comprehensive. He built on uh, some of the reporting that had already been done, particularly by uh, the inspector general who was limited in his investigative tools compared to a full-blown prosecutor. You know, Durham was able to issue subpoenas and use the grand jury and that sort of stuff. Uh so I'm generally uh, favorable toward what what uh, John Durham did and I know him personally. He's a person of uh of great uh integrity and scruples. But I do part company with him uh in the conclusion he draws from the fact that the FBI was raised up in uh the summer of 2016, in July of 2016, about the fact that our spy agencies had intercepted Russian intelligence analysis that said that Clinton was planning to smear Trump as a Russian asset. Durham's criticism of the FBI over that is that they ignored this intelligence when they were um, doing their own analysis of the information that was coming to them, and they weren't cognizant enough of the fact that they might be being fed disinformation. And to my mind, the best interpretation of his report is that the FBI was intimidated by Clinton, that they believed she was going to be the next president, that they were afraid of reprisals uh, if they bucked against what the Clinton campaign was doing, and I don't think the FBI ignored this evidence. I think the FBI, to the contrary, um, understood that Clinton's theme was that Trump was a was a Putin puppet, and they went along for the ride, I think, quite knowingly. I, I really don't
1: think this was ignoring. I think this was uh, getting on board the train. Well, Greg Jarrett, why did they ignore it? Why did they get along to, uh, go on the train? I mean, well, because they, is this just Trump- politics? Right. Okay. go ahead. The
6: the FBI top echelon of the FBI, uh, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Elisa Page, they hated uh, Donald Trump. They loathed his policies and they made a conscious decision to do everything they could uh, to prevent him from getting elected. And when that plan failed, they doubled down. Uh, And as Durham makes clear, you know, they had no. Credible evidence, no uh, actionable intelligence that that Trump colluded with Russia, but they didn't care. They never vetted or corroborated anything. When they eventually got around to it, they discovered that there was no evidence that it was largely based on a Hillary Clinton commissioned dossier that was a collection of pernicious lies. They debunked it. They, you know, discovered that it came mostly from. Hillary Clinton's confederates, Charles Dolan and Igor Danchenko, and some of it was Russian disinformation itself. In a way, you know, uh, Trump Trump didn't collude with Russia, but in a way Hillary Clinton and her confederates uh, did. You know, I, I go to page 81 of the report, and it says that, you know, the FBI, uh, uh, excuse me, the CIA obtained reliable information that, quote, Hillary had approved a campaign plan to stir up a scandal against Trump by tying him to Putin and the Russians. And, you know, in my new column coming out this weekend, I I point out that the people who knew this were Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. James Clapper, the DNI, uh, the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, and others. And, and you know, for three years, they knew this but remained silent. And the silence in order to hide the truth is, in my judgment, a lie.
1: Andy McCarthy, I mean, is it the seventh floor of the FBI? I guess that's where the top brass are. I mean, right. what are, their mo- are they just all a bunch of liberal Democrats? Is that what the deal is? I think there certainly um the guys who were in
5: that regime were left leaning. I mean, you know, one of Trump's gripes about Andy McCabe who was the hands-on, he was the deputy director and uh, as Greg mentions, the, you know, the the headquarters of the regime there was very hands-on in this. And one of Trump's gripes about him was that he got funding or his wife who was running for uh, state legislature in Virginia got funding from uh, an asset connected to the Clinton's pal, Terry McAuliffe. Um, but, you know, I think you, you deal with people who have leftist center leanings, uh, even though, you know, Comey served in the in the Bush administration. He served in high-level positions in, in uh, administrations of both parties. But I really think this is, this is more about, I don't think these guys are so much um, political ideologues as they are you know, practical politicians who understood which way the wind was blowing, and uh, they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were afraid of, uh, with good reason, I think, they were afraid of reprisals. My personal view, Larry, for what it's worth, is that if Clinton had one sheet of fired Comey on the first day, mm-hmm. but because, um, you know, they like to blame her, they like to blame Comey the fact that she lost and it was a big deal that comey announced that that investigation was reopened 10 days before the election but as i often point out to people if comey hadn't absolved clinton and said that no reasonable prosecutor um would have indicted her which i guess makes me an unreasonable prosecutor <laughs> um i you know if he hadn't done that she wouldn't have had a campaign he could have killed her campaign there and then so you know, for all their squawking about it, I think that, uh, you know, they owed, uh, they owed Comey more than they'd like to admit.
1: But, you know, Greg, Jarrett, it's interesting to me <clears throat> just in a common sense way, all right, if they weren't all ideologues, left uh, left of center ideologues and so forth, but they weren't passive. The FBI was active. I mean, they were driving this thing through against Trump every step of the way, really. I mean, the VISA court is one example, but other examples, either not pursuing leads. I mean, the you know the Wall Street Journal editorial today is very interesting about Robert Mueller, his yep. role in all this. Now, Mueller was uh, I first met Mueller during the George W. Bush administration. I met him at a dinner at Dick Cheney's house, the vice president's house. You know, he was he was um, well regarded. He was regarded as a as uh, somebody on the team. And then he, you know, goes against uh, Republicans. I mean, maybe it's oh, his hatred of Trump. I don't know. I, I mean, what was it? What, what were Trump's policies that the FBI disagreed with anyway? Is there an institutional problem here? Is there something the FBI... I mean, Trump was basically a law and order president.
6: Well, I, Andy's point is well taken, that they assumed, based on pulling data, that Hillary was going to be... Uh, the next president of the United States, and I I think that influenced their decision-making to go after Trump, but to turn a blind eye to Hillary, and and not just her email scandals, in which, in my judgment, she clearly violated the Espionage Act and committed obstruction by destroying uh, records under subpoena, but uh, relating to her foundation and other activities, there were four separate uh, investigations by the FBI that Comey effectively shut down. You know, in Durham, in his report, he minces no words. He describes the FBI's double standard and the quote-unquote dual system of justice that it produced. For example, Hillary received the courtesy of a defensive briefing about corrupt foreign actors. Trump Mm. did not. Mm. The FBI rejected a surveillance warrant on Hillary Clinton from the secret FISA court um, while seeking four successive spy warrants involving Trump's campaign. Hmm. You know, and of course, to secure those intrusions, exculpatory evidence was deliberately withheld from the judges. Supporting documents were altered by Kevin Kleinsmith, an FBI lawyer who eventually copped a plea to it. I mean, Comey deceived the judges vouching for the credibility of a dossier that the FBI had already debunked. And he represented Steele was reliable, not telling the judges, oh, by the way, we fired Steele for lying. He was a confidential informant. So, you know, the irony embedded in this collusion con, I think, is... Fully exposed in the Durham report, instead of conspiring with Putin uh, in the bowels of the Kremlin, Trump uh, became the victim of Clinton-induced Russian disinformation that helped fuel the dossier.
1: But um, Andrew McCarthy, uh, so now Trump is president, and then before you know it, we've got an impeachment hearing on all this Russian collusion stuff, but doesn't the FBI continue its campaign against Trump? And why? And why? I think,
5: yeah, so you remember the infamous conversation in, uh, I guess it was September of uh, 2016 by, uh, where Peter Strzok essentially says that they have an insurance policy. Right. Um, Now, as we all know, you know, insurance is is what kicks in if the disaster happens, right, not before.
1: (laughs) Yes. And to
5: them, the disaster was Trump being elected, uh, which is how a lot of these guys viewed it. And the insurance policy was that they had this counterintelligence investigation in place. Uh, It was mainly run even after Trump was elected and should have been able to put a halt to it. Uh, It was run by Obama administration holdovers remember uh Comey continued on at the FBI and uh Sally Yates continued on at the Justice Department and one of the first things that they did with the with the Trump administration is get uh, Jeff Sessions to recuse himself and get uh, Mike Flynn uh who was the national security advisor uh in a position where he ended up having to resign i think they, those two were experienced Uh, intelligence actors and knew a lot about how the Justice Department worked and the secret stuff, and if there were two people in the Trump administration who maybe could have found out what the FBI was up to and put a stop to it, it was probably the two of them. Once they were marginalized, I think the FBI had smooth sailing in continuing that investigation because, frankly, the the Trump people did not get in the White House the kind of um, experienced people like, this wouldn't have continued with Bill Barr right. on hand.
6: Right. You know, they right. needed
5: people who could go toe-to-toe with Comey. Uh, you know, he, basically Comey intimidated them into thinking that if they inquired into what was going on, they'd be guilty of obstruction. Uh, and I think they needed somebody there who could, could you know, go toe-to-toe with Comey. and said, that's ridiculous. Uh, but they didn't have someone, unfortunately.
1: I never understood... Uh... Greg, I never understood why Sessions recused himself. Jeff Sessions is a good friend of mine. I wasn't in the administration. That was 2017. But uh, I've known Jeff for many years, uh, worked with him during the campaign, was very happy to see him as attorney general. I believe he was the first senator to endorse Trump. But I never understood why he recused himself, uh, because it seems like it's what Andy's saying. I mean, that opened the door to more and more uh, FBI mischief.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And as I explain in detail uh, in my book, The Russia Hoax, and in my second book, Witch Hunt, he didn't have to recuse himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't required. He was simply bowing to public pressure. Now, Barr would not have succumbed to that kind of pressure, and mm. you know he would have shut this down. But once again. You know, James Comey's Machiavellian machinations is what led to Mueller and the special counsel. I mean, Comey, when he was finally and eventually fired for usurping the authority of the attorney general uh, in, in the email case, he pilfered documents from FBI files, took them home, and leaked them. Mm. Uh, to a friend of his uh, for the sole purpose of uh, having it published and triggering uh, a special counsel, which just happened to be his uh, longtime friend, colleague, mentor, uh, Robert Mueller. Mueller never ran that investigation. I think we understood why when he Mm. eventually testified. It was run by Andrew Weissman, Weissman- picked a team of partisan prosecutors, their only problem was um, there was no evidence of collusion. Uh, Despite their best efforts to find it, they never did. And, of course, in the end, the Mueller report said there was uh, no evidence of a Trump-Russia collusion conspiracy. So, you know, all of this uh, happened because of people like Comey. Uh, but it wouldn't have happened had Bill Barr been the attorney general at the outset. Sessions right. was way in over his head. Yeah. Uh, you know, he'd been a senator and he didn't have the skills or ability or instincts to be an attorney general.
1: Fellas, let's take a quick break. Uh, if you would just hang on for a minute uh, on the other side of the break, we're talking to Greg Jarrett and we're talking to Andrew McCarthy. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: We are talking about the Durham report and the Russian collusion fiasco. And I I do want to just say once again, as I said at the very top of the show, uh, Donald Trump was completely exonerated by this report. I don't want to lose sight of that, but there's a million things that have to be covered now. We don't have enough time to do it, but uh, I want to ask, uh, Andy, I'll start with you. We'll have to be a little brief on this. Right, uh, Robert Ray, is he the guy to clean up this uh, f- FBI, or is this going to have to wait until we get a strong Republican in the White House? Yeah,
5: Chris Ray, I think, Larry. Um, I mean, Larry, Chris Ray, and, Yeah, yeah I, uh, I, I think the FBI's got a lot of problems, and there are th- things that have to be, at a fundamental level, not just about the FBI, but FISA and
1: a number of their other authorities. Greg, I, I don't think it's going to get solved till we get a strong Republican back in the White House.
6: Yeah, I mean, the, the rot is so endemic at the DOJ, the FBI, so broken. Uh, it's embedded in the Bureau. And frankly, I think the hierarchy needs to be dismantled and rebuilt with honest people at the helm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I'm i with you on that, 100%. Greg Jarrett, Fox News, Andy McCarthy, National Review. I'm Kudlow. Much more on the other side of the break. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in my pal, Michael Falkander, professor of finance at the University of Maryland former assistant secretary of the treasury for economic policy and the chief economist of the america first policy institute mike thanks for doing this on a saturday uh I, I want to talk about the economy but just um you know you you were in the treasury for several years uh in a key spot what's your take what's the deadline what's the what's the you know x day for the uh debt stuff now because the as you know the the talks the so-called talks are going nowhere <laughs> surprise surprise the democrats don't want to cut spending okay that's a shocker breaking news but uh you have any thoughts on the uh, actual this treasury going to run out of cash can they keep looting the retirement funds funds what's going to happen here
4: You know, that they not only can keep looting the retirement funds for a little while longer, but there are some steps that if they really were facing a cash crunch, I would have expected them to have already taken. So, you know, if you really were anticipating that you were going to run out of money in the Treasury's checking account, you would start not paying certain contractors or at least taking longer to pay some of the contractors. You'd start looking at furloughing non-essential government employees so that we could elongate the amount of time that we've God. And the fact that they're not doing those things, in fact, I was uh, talking with some federal contractors earlier this week and they're getting paid early. So, yeah. you know, that's kind of standard cash management that you would do in order to elongate that. So are they, as you've said before, are they wanting to hit this time frame so that they can create the hysteria and think that they can force, um, you know, a clean vote out of the House of Representatives? So I, I don't, trust that they are really you know, negotiating in good faith because they, I think, ultimately want to shut things down and and then think that they can keep spending.
1: Mm-hmm. Somehow force the Republicans into submission. It's not going to happen. I mean, I can just tell you, I'm in touch it's, with all people on the GOP side. It's not going to happen
4: and because the American people are with the Republicans on this. Right. I mean, poll after poll after poll that I've seen says, yes, we should... We should rescind COVID money that hasn't been spent. Mm -hmm. We should cut back on the level of government spending back to where it was prior to the pandemic. Student loans should not be forgiven. Yes, there should be work requirements, because remember, who are the work requirements for? Able-bodied, prime-age, childless, Mm -hmm. right? In a 3.5% unemployment environment, why shouldn't the American people ask people in that situation, to work as a condition to receive food stamps, TANF, and Medicaid.
1: Yeah, you're dead right on that. You know, one of the first things that happened when they started talking uh, staff to staff was the Democrats immediately took the student loan cancellations off the table. And the other thing they did, Mike, is uh, you know they uh, the Republicans and the McCarthy plan wanted to stop all these greeny tax credits that were in the uh, misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, because they're no, well, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but among others, there are absolutely no limits. They, those credits could go into the, like, the next 25 years. And as you may know, others, uh, actually the CBO, but others like Goldman Sachs and so forth have reestimated the cost of that bill to be over a trillion dollars. They just took that right off the table. They don't want to talk about it at all. And now they're bickering, They do not they don't want a 1% cap, they don't want any caps uh, for 10 years. I mean, you've got four and a half, five trillion trillion, of savings in there uh, with the uh, McCarthy caps. They just don't want to do it. They just took that stuff right off. And, you know, I think that's why Garrett Graves, you know, walked out yesterday morning. They had a 10-minute meeting, and it was more of the same, and he walked out. I know they came back last night, but nothing happened on that. I mean, they, they still want to cut spending. They don't want to go into the student loans. They don't want you know stop the green uh, stuff. And the permitting, the permitting, they, the permits that the Democrats want are only for renewables, no fossil fuels. How the hell can you? That's not a compromise. No, not at all.
4: I mean, and, and it is the fact that they are willing to blow up talks and put the country into default for the first time exactly so that they can continue to forgive student loans that primarily goes to people in the you know, upper 30 percent of the income distribution, that they won't cut back on all of these subsidies for EVs. Because like you said, you know, Joe Manchin intentionally in the in the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act said we need to have sourcing minimums in order to get these credits, because to the extent that the federal government is going to subsidize the transition to electric vehicles, then they ought to be made in the United States. Mm. And the Treasury Department just ignores them just ignores mm. the sourcing requirements. And that's why Goldman Sachs, among others, has come back and said, this is going to cost us a lot more because CDO didn't think that we'd be able to make all, we'd be able to meet many of these requirements on sourcing. Mm. And so they're just going to ignore them. And that's why that piece is gone. But the fact that there's an unwillingness to bring spending levels back to where they were prior to the pandemic. I mean, Larry, you and I both know, look at how strong 2019 was. We had the biggest increase in household income. We had the lowest poverty rate, not just ever, but among all races, right? We had um, we had the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. We had an economy hitting on all cylinders, but the Biden's view of how to run the economy is you get big government and big labor and big business all together, and you divvy things up and you remove any entrepreneurship, you remove any dynamism, and it's just government dependency, and they want to micromanage. The, they want a central plan. And they refuse to give in on anything that's going to take them away from central planning, even if it means defaulting on the government debt.
1: Yeah, I love that central planning. I, You know, I talk about that all the time. This is like Soviet-style central planning. So yeah, I, re- I remember sitting in those meetings where you were just advocating <laughs> for central planning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, your points about furloughs and contracting is very important, so we need to watch for that. The CBO report came out, uh, Michael, and uh, they said if you get through the tax date, uh, was it, corporate tax date, June 15th, they probably have enough money to get through July, actually.
4: Yeah, so I remember I used to work with um, the office that puts together the monthly treasury statement and, and do the press briefings. And there's very clear patterns. You know, April is always a, a, a surplus month because personal tax returns come in. And then of course, June is usually a surplus month because you get the quarterly filings and the corporate tax payments. So once those receipts come in, you know, usually you run a, a surplus. So if you get past I think June 2nd, because, Social security checks go out that day. Then you're back to being in a nice cash position for a little while. But, you know, because we're running a $1.5 trillion deficit this year, you are going to then start hitting some deficit months, and that's when you start worrying about the balance in the checking account again. So it's, it's not like spending is a constant stream. There are these huge lumps. And if you get past a lump, then you're clear until the next one comes.
1: Um. That's all very helpful, so one quickie we got just a minute and a half. Um, the index of leading indicators in April fell for the thirteenth straight month. What does that tell you? Uh, well,
4: the economy continues to be in trouble we're you know we we're people households are running out of money they're hitting credit card limits, interest rates keep rising, and so um and then with the failure of the banks, we've seen that credit conditions are tightening. So if you think about the ways that, that households primarily fund their activities, it's first and foremost wages, but they're not keeping up with inflation. Second, it's savings. Households built that up during the pandemic, but savings rates are at terribly low levels. And then it's credit. And with tightening credit standards plus credit card debt hitting record highs, consumers are running out of, households are running out of funds to fund their consumption. That's, you know, 70% of, of gross output. And so the result is that they're going to be pulling back, and every indicator, as you said, has been telling us that more and more for the last 13 months. So the recession that I thought would already have been here still hmm. seems like it's it's coming.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. The, the leading indicators, uh, also things like the inverted yield curve, uh, M2 money supply. I know that's not a perfect one, but – You've got a lot of really war- a lot of warning signs of recession. I'm not sure the stock market at Wall Street understands that, but I was kind of shocked by the leading indicator stuff. It was our friend Joe Lavornia that brought it to my attention. I, I don't follow that as much from the conference board. But that's a brutal number. It's down eight percent year on year, uh, Michael, and I you know, I, I, we're not out of the woods. We may be going into the woods. That's, I think, what the uh, what the uh, bottom line is going to be here.
4: That's exactly right. And if you look at the Biden administration's budget submission, they're not at all calling for growth. I mean, this is right. this is an austerity government. They, I say austerity in in terms of uh, there's just going to be less to go around, right? I mean, the problem with central planning is that you remove the incentive the private sector to generate more output. Mm. And, you know, there used to be a bipartisan consensus that we wanted growth. Mm. But, you know, if you look at the baseline budget, I know I'm going to get deep into the weeds here, but I know how much you love these conversations, (laughs) Larry. Just a (laughs) a few seconds. And then the policy budget, right? The difference between those ought to generate growth because the baseline is if we do nothing, the policy budget is if we do the administration's objectives. And yet there's no improvement in growth. No, because it's the, a re,
1: they no longer want growth. It's redistribution. You know, they don't really care about growth. They've got ideological policy objectives. It's never growth. The left is never growth-driven. In fact, it's, you know, maybe anti-growth-driven. Anyway, Mike Falkender of University of Maryland, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, America First Policy. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Folks, take, take, uh, quick break. And on the other side, we got my friend uh, Greg Kelly, from WABC and uh, Newsmax, we want to talk about interior the the illegal migrants coming into the interior of the country, especially in New York. Oh my gosh, this is a big mess. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break.
0: Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure. Bring in Greg Kelly. WABC radio host his terrific show three to five p.m. every day during the week. Also, Newsmax television anchor, Greg. Thank you for this. We appreciate it. Hate to make you come out on a Saturday, but you're great.
7: Oh, Larry, I love it. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm coming to you from what was formerly a great neighborhood, uh, Midtown East,
1: and uh, things are things are falling apart really, really fast. Well, so I I wanted to ask you about this. Now, you've got this um, situation, open borders. You've got all these illegal migrants coming into the interior of the country. Now, in New York, let's talk about New York for a minute. My pal Liz Peake, who will be on the show later, uh, writes a column about how they wanted to set up some kind of tent city in Central Park to house migrants. There are other horror stories about, you know, migrants in hotels, uh, migrants replacing veterans, although that veteran story turned out not to be the case. But the reality is uh, Mayor Eric Adams doesn't seem to know what he's supposed to do about this except complain and ask for more federal money. All right. Now, you know a lot about the local scene here. What is this all about? Where are we going here? Well, I'm not shocked. We have an incompetent narcissist as mayor.
7: He has no idea what to do. I warn people about this. Uh, I hate to say I told you so, but he fooled some people. Uh, uh, he's a former police officer. He's going to be tough on law enforcement. Uh, he's going to be tough on these issues. No, he was a clown. He always has been a clown, not a serious man. He became mayor with uh, about 200,000 votes in a city of 8 million people. 200,000 people made him the mayor. Mm. And uh, you can see he has no uh, operational skill, no governing skill, no political skill. Now he's in a fight with the Biden administration. Why is he in a fight with the Biden administration? Because it looks good to the New York Post. I love the New York Post, but he's all things to all people all the time, right? No, isn't this great? Eric Eric Adams is saying the right things on the border. In the meantime, he's not fixing the problem. You get on the phone. There are some things that have to be done behind the scenes. He's blowing it. He's in love with himself. And this Roosevelt Hotel, which is a very special place, quite mm-hmm. frankly, to me in my heart. And I, I shouldn't say this, but I used to go to Star Trek conventions at the Roosevelt Hotel. <laughs> I love that place. To me, it was the most glamorous place on earth. And do you remember, Larry, in Wall Street, uh, the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas? Mm-hmm. Greed is Good, the Gordon Gecko mm-hmm. Greed is Good oh, moment. Oh, was
1: that meeting in uh, Roosevelt? Absolutely. Oh, and- that's fabulous. And during that little talk, he talks
7: about how America, America is becoming a second-rate power. Right. And he talks about how we lost our industrial might. And that's 40, what is that, 40? That's 40 years ago almost, yeah, that movie. Almost. Yeah. And in the middle of that, to see now it's it's going to be occupied by, well, um, illegals who have no business being here. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. The whole damn
1: thing is heartbreaking. Roosevelt was a big Republican hangout. Sure.
7: Tom Dewey actually had his, yeah. uh, uh yeah. he had his, uh, well, he didn't have his victory party there. He had his right. defeat party. The, the Republican state party was based there. And now for this to happen, it's very much representative of, of, of a city in decline. You know, it, it was a great hotel. Then it started to decline. Then Pakistan bought the hotel, actually. And then it totally shuttered during COVID. And now this, uh, now this. And I uh, quite frankly, look, I'm sorry, I don't trust these people. We don't know who they are. They have not sworn allegiance to the United States. If you go back to the 2020 convention with Trump, my favorite moment during that convention, he saw uh, five people from all over the world, from Africa, from South Asia, all over the place, come in and take the citizenship oath. They did Mm -hmm. all the right things, amazing people from all over the world, and you take that citizenship oath. You you promise to take up arms for the country, hmm. that you support our ideals and the Constitution. These people don't have to do that. We don't know who the hell they are or hmm. what their agenda is. I don't know if you've been watching Gordon Chang, but all these uh, these military-age men from
1: China coming in, we're in big, big trouble. And Russian, uh, Russians just, coming in. The Russians coming across the border. One of them was interviewed on Fox. Blew my mind. really. Russians. Really? Okay. So, Greg, what's going to happen? You know, I had um, Congresswoman Claudia Tenney on the TV show last night and she was reminding uh, on this point that um, that these migrants are filtering through uh, upstate New York. I don't just mean Rockland County and Orange County all the way up. You know, she's way up in the Syracuse area and they don't know where to put them and they don't really want them. So what are we going to do? I mean, it's an Eric Adams problem, but it's now it's a hokul problem. What's going to happen here?
7: Well, number one, if if Eric Adams were to suddenly become a wise, mature man overnight, which is not going to happen, uh, you have to have a You have to talk to Governor Abbott immediately. Mm -hmm. You have to make peace Mm -hmm. with the Biden administration immediately. I can't stand the Biden administration, but. You don't talk about high schools and gymnasiums, all right? Now, we do have Rikers Island. Yeah. There are arrangements that could be made. There are prisons all over the place that are no longer prisons. They're defunct uh, structures yeah. that could be used for this purpose. And that's that's a Band-Aid. I mean, we have to stop the hemorrhaging at the border, of course. Um, you know, the initial uh, idea he came up with, uh, you know, a broken clock is right every now and then, Randall's Island but of course he didn't think about how people would get there he made no other arrangements the, the buses were still going to port authority so nobody was going to randalls island he totally screwed that up uh but those are just those are just band-aids quite frankly i you know i i i talked about it for a little while it's too it's too far away it's too far away uh we need we need a we need a new mayor and the election isn't until 2025 so uh there's no there's no easy answer here um some creative some creative thinking about intercepting these buses. If you have an emergency um, uh, health order, there are all kinds of things you can do that we did post 9-11. But this is, they're not, they're not creative people. They just love going on TV and seeing their name and picture in the paper.
1: The migrants are a health risk. That's another issue. I mean, left off, you know, the Bidens did not replace Title 42. And COVID may have passed. But there's still major public health issues. And so they're spreading out across the country and they're not you know, really tested and um, they could have diseases. They may not even know they have diseases, but the Bidens have let that go because of their open border policy. Greg Kelly, let me just ask you, um, what's your assessment now of the law and order situation in New York City, the policing situation? Is it any better? No, it's getting worse. Uh, you, you see the climate
7: everywhere you go. Uh, police have been, uh, totally held back. Uh, I understand that as well. If they, if they act aggressively, uh, they open themselves up to, uh, uh being jailed or, or prosecuted. Uh, quality of life is, uh, getting worse. Aggressive panhandling, shoplifting, it's a completely different city. And quite frankly, with, with the migrant situation, I mean, we could have full on riots. We really could have full on riots, mm. um, within the next couple of months. Mm. Um, so, uh, and the cops, this is, this is a very dangerous, uneasy time. It may take a miracle. It really may take a miracle. You know, I, I I'm not sure where you are on, uh, well, you work for Donald Trump and I really would love to see him back. Mm -hmm. I think that he is the kind of the antidote to a lot of what's happening right now. Um, Mm -hmm. It may take a miracle, but a miracle has a way of finding Donald Trump. Let me put it that way.
1: Well, remember, as we were talking earlier in this show about the Durham report, Donald Trump was completely exonerated in that report. So that's going to give him a leg up. Anyway, Greg Kelly, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it very, very much. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work with Stephanie Link and Kenny Polcari. Please stick around. Much more to come.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. Just for a reset, by the way, you can get this show on the Internet, live streaming, larrycudlow.com No, LarryKudlowShow.com, larrycudlowshow.com Throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way, wherever that happens to be. And during the week on television, you can watch us, the Fox Business Network, Monday through Friday, every day, 4 to 5 p.m. The name of the show is Cudlow. And if you can't get to us at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. It's not hard. Anyway, let's do some stock market work. We've got Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Kenny Polcari, Managing Director at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Welcome to both of you. Stephanie Link, um, stock market interest rates went up this week. I'm just looking at the sheets. Two-year note went up 28 basis points. The 10-year note went up 21 basis points, 367. The 30-year mortgage rate up 10 basis points, 699. Call that 7%. Ha, ha, ha. We had terrible numbers on uh, existing home sales. The index of leading indicators, Ms. Link, fell in April for the thirteenth consecutive month. The index of leading indicators, put out by the Conference Board. So, what do you make of it? Before we get to the Fed and all that, what do you make of it? What is the economy doing? What is the stock market doing?
8: <laughs> well, and thanks for having me, and it's Always. great to be on with Kenny, and it's great to be great to be with Kenny too. Um, I think near term. The the speculation that we might get a debt ceiling resolution, that's been the near-term catalyst, um, and it's helped the markets. That being said, underneath the surface, it's been only big tech. That's the story of the year. That has saved the day for now. Um, the top five tech names are counting for about 90% of the return so far. So it's very, very narrow. But, you know, the market's not collapsing like a lot of the bears have been expecting. And I think the reason, Larry, is because, Yes, you cited a couple of the negative data points uh, in the economy. The the economy overall is is holding up. Um, You mentioned housing, um, existing home sales. No one wants to sell a home, right, if their mortgage is a 4%. If they sell it, then they have to go out and get a 6% mortgage. Um, But I think new home sales is more interesting to me. And while it's still depressed, it's at a one-year high. And the NAHB index, National Association of Home Builders, sentiment it's the highest since september 22nd. So I'm not saying housing is great, but I think housing is tropping. Number 1, number 2 manufacturing. I know the ISMs are still crummy and in contraction mode, but if I listen to what some of these companies are telling me and us in conference calls there's like a renaissance happening in the in the manufacturing industry because of the government stimulus, because of reshoring, because of energy transition, because of electrification, and you know that it's only twelve manufacturing is only twelve percent of the economy, but there is a multiplier effect, and uh, for every one job created in manufacturing, seven jobs are created around it. So that brings me two jobs. Initial claims have actually remained pretty. Uh, pretty strong, right? I mean, a four-week moving average is down sixteen thousand. I know it's still up seven percent year over year, but very contained. And so you add it all up, and the Atlanta Fed number GDP now is for the second quarter is tracking at two point nine percent. That's better than what I think a lot of people, including myself, were expecting.
1: What do you do with the index of leading indicators? What does that yeah, do? I mean, I
8: can't- I get- I pay attention I pay attention to it, but I also <laughs> I also pay I also pay attention to the the the, the concern in the bank lending standards. Yep. It hasn't had an impact yet, and we'll yep. get to the Fed and all that. But not perfect, Larry. Not perfect by any means. But I'm looking at a couple of things, and I'm saying there are offsets, right? There, there are puts and takes. I just don't think it's as bad and as gloomy as people are expecting, and I think that's what's helped the market in check because earnings have held in check.
1: Ken Pilgeri, uh Stephanie has just given us uh, the glass is half full. What are you saying?
2: Well, so listen, I think it's very, and it's a pleasure to be on with you and Steph. Uh, it, it is it is interesting because to her point, there's only a half a dozen names that are holding this market up. If those names start to struggle, then you'll see kind of the market pull back, I think, and you'll see the real weakness. But that being said, I do agree that there is some positive uh, news out there. There are things to kind of pay attention to in terms of manufacturing and the economy holding up and earnings holding up. They weren't nearly as bad as they were originally expected to be and in the second quarter. I think we came in at, what, down 4% versus, I think the expectation was down 6.5% originally as we moved into the earnings season. So I do see some bright lights, but I got to tell you, I'm not so sure the debt-dealing thing is playing that much of a role because whoever really thought that the U.S. was going to default in the first place? We were never going to default no matter what happens. They're going to make it all dramatic and they're going to take it to the 11th hour and they're going to you know, go back and forth and say, look at how hard we worked to get this. We were never going to default. So I think while maybe it's playing the short-term uh, uh, plus because they've changed the language, they are not using inflammatory language, now we're getting a debt deal done. I think that's taking some of the edge off. But the truth is, Once we get through the debt ceiling, it's going to focus once again on inflation, what's going to happen with PCE at the end of the month, what's going to happen with CPI, PPI, what's the Fed going to do. There's now talk of not only a June rate hike, but you've got some in the Fed talking about even a 6% terminal rate, which I don't think the market's prepared for. And I think that's going to cause uh, a cap cap on the market now and and cause it to pull back a little bit. Not a disaster. I don't think we're going Morgan Stanley S&P 3000, not by any stretch. But I wouldn't be surprised if we test it again closer to four thousand uh, after after we get through the debt ceiling thing.
1: By the way, uh, whatever it's worth, and I'm not sure it matters to the stock market. Uh, they yesterday the talks collapsed. They had a ten minute right. meeting in the morning, and then they walked out. And then everybody was so freaked out they came back at six thirty, but then they walked out of that meeting too. And no new meetings are scheduled. Now, maybe that'll change. Maybe they'll have a meeting tomorrow. I mean, it's an impasse. Uh, I'm not worried about that default. In fact, I'm in favor of shutting down the government. Always have been. I would shut it down for long periods of time. It would be very helpful to the economy. But, 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 let let me ask you this. Um, uh, Earnings reports and other commentary from consumer companies like Walmart and Target and Home Depot, what, what are those big... Firms telling us about consumers. Who are you asking? I mean, Me you can continue. I want to get both of you in this, but go ahead. You were on a roll there for a minute.
2: So- <laughs> Listen, I just want to clarify one thing. When you said shut the government down, that's separate from defaulting. Am I correct? Because I don't have a problem with shutting the government down, but yeah. the U.S. is not going to default. No, no, There's we'll never
1: default. Right? We have revenues right. to pay the interest on the 10-year. Uh, right. It's not going to be a problem. Right. I'm just saying, right, so my generic view as a free market capitalist, looking at what's going on in Washington, you want to shut the government down for six months, I'm all for it. Right. Now, that's a sidebar. That's a sidebar. Yeah, yeah. I okay, I so argued the good. same way when I was in the Trump administration. Shut it down, I don't care. Right. So let's get back to the consumers. Except I, I was an essential worker.
2: <laughs> I think there's two stories going on here, right? The one was the Home Depot disappointment, that we yeah. got earlier in the week. And then we saw Target and Walmart, you know, come out with a, with a different story. They were better. Their guidance was better. But I think there's two different things going on there. Home Depot is all about, you know, renovating your house, do it yourself, fixing things up. And I think people are, A, tired of that after the, you know, they did that during COVID. They spent time kind of making the place pretty and all that. I think now they want different experiences. But on the other side... Then you've got this looming recession coming. You have people that are nervous about what the future is. And so names like Walmart and Target, which appeal to, uh, you know, discounted products and better prices and all that stuff, are going to force the consumer to start to look there for more of their needs, even more so than they did. So I think the two different stories, I think the Home Depot story is a very specific story about people just tired about at the moment fixing up the house and spending the money well, they on, probably They up. probably
1: fixed them all up during they, COVID. They
2: probably fixed it up,
1: Correct. Stephanie, though, what did you learn from Walmart and Target?
2: So
8: I learned that um, the four names that reported this, this week being uh, TJX, Target, Walmart, um, uh, and, and Home Depot, we, got, we learned a little bit about everything. I think the, conser- the guidance is definitely conservative, but the overall earnings actually held up remarkably well, considering everyone thinks that the, the consumer is going in the toilet. Um, we had a beat and raise from TJX, and, and admittedly, they will benefit from people trading down and all the excess inventory in the system uh, because they buy all that stuff, right? And then they sell it at a discount, and that's, that's the story. So not a surprise on TJ, very well positioned for the long term. I want to highlight throughout all of the names. Every single company said freight costs are down, and that helped margins. And I think that's going to be a theme throughout retail. That's a good thing. So even if the consumer slows down a bit, and I, don't, I, I think they will, um, but I think they're going to still spend. But even if they do, they're offsetting it with lower costs across the board. Inflation has come down for these companies, so they're able to see higher margins. The second theme that I think is going to be, um throughout this uh earnings season for retail is inventories. Inventories at at, at uh at uh, at Target were down sixteen percent, mm. right? And their discretionary piece of inventories was down twenty five percent. So that too is gonna help the margin side of the equation. And I thought Target there are a couple of things they did company-specific that were better than expected. Like I, like I said, inventory operating margins, gross margins. So while the consumer is slowing down a little bit and guidance was a little slow for the next couple of quarters, I'm not really that worried. Walmart is a shining star because they have all grocery, right? 60% of their revenue is grocery, and that's where the consumer is spending that and services. Home Depot, I think it's rearview-looking, and I think we went from 2023 of being the earnings fear of numbers coming down to we're kind of troughing. If I'm right, and I think we see a housing pickup in the second half of the year and into next year, Home Depot is going to be the place where you want to go and it's trading at a very attractive multiple. So I think there are company specifics across the board, but I think they're handling the situation the, the best that they can, and there are puts and takes. But I do not think any of these companies said the consumer is absolutely dead. Not at all. They're falling, I, not
1: dead. I, I worry about the consumer because the EPA has forbidden you now you can't buy a gas stove. You can't buy a shower head, You can't buy a toilet. You can't buy an air conditioner. You can't buy a new car. I mean, it's very difficult. All these climate change policies. doesn't mm. You can't buy anything. You can't buy a light bulb. I mean, it's nothing. What can I buy, Stephanie? I can't buy anything. <laughs> They're not going to let me buy anything because it doesn't meet the EPA's uh, climate standards. It's very difficult <laughs> living in America today. Very difficult.
8: Uh, I, think, I think there are plenty of things you can buy, but we are out. Kenny hit on it a, a earlier. There, th- The consumer still is out and about on services, right? We know that that's the strength. That's going to slow, too, but it's certainly been resilient and strong. And if you listen to the airlines and you listen to the cruise lines and you listen to all of the services companies, the casinos, I mean, they're just doing spectacularly well, and they're not seeing any kind of slowdown. It's just we went from a good – a uh, goods buying consumer to a services one, and the goods are going to come back eventually. We just have some, uh, some again, we have some puts and takes within the consumer.
1: I worry, about, yes. I, I worry yes. about. I worry about the airline, business. Yes. I well, about the airline sure. business. I worry about the airline business. Oh, I do
8: know. too. I don't. I don't. I don't yeah. want to own an airline, but I just want to listen to what they have to say about bookings. But I would just say as a one last thing, um, the consumer remains strong because the job market remains strong. So well, that's that's my. Before,
1: Flying has yeah, to be get, very difficult because it's gonna, all powered by windmills. It's going to be very <laughs> difficult is, it's gonna, I don't it's
2: know now. You've all traveled. i got to tell you, you go to any airport, they're overcrowded. Every seat on the plane <laughs> is taken. And, by the way, steep prices have done nothing but go up. Try buying a plane ticket now. The prices are absolutely yeah. incredible, and, 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 and every plane is full. It's crazy. I, and I just went on that, on that uh, cruise. Uh, there were plenty of people on the cruise. The, the ship was full of people and everyone was enjoying themselves and having a great time. And so, to the experience side of the consumer, I think that's what they're looking for. They're tired of being locked down. They're tired of just doing that stuff. They want to get out and about. Ken, pictures
8: it? were gorgeous on Twitter.
1: Where'd you go? Again, Where'd you go?
2: I was on, I was on the, I was on that Steve Forbes Investment Summit cruise, uh, oh, that started right, Venice right. and went down, uh, and went down the Adriatic all the way to Istanbul, Turkey and back to Athens. it was really spectacular, but the cruise ship you know was a was a was a region it was norwegian cruise line, but it was their boutique uh boutique cruise line, so it's only a smaller ship six hundred people on the ship plus four hundred uh four hundred workers It was really really spectacular
1: why uh, kids why is um, oil only seventy dollars with the the Saudis cut oil production uh-huh. allegedly by over a million. But oil's really done nothing. So I'm looking at uh, crude oil, WTI, 71.5, Brent crude, yeah. 75.5. you surprised at the weakness in oil? Yes. I am surprised.
2: The, yeah. Yeah, me too. Kenny, go ahead. No, I'm surprised. I figured that, and I think what you're going to hear on June 4th when OPEC meets again. Is that they're going to rattle the cages about cutting production even more? Because mm-hmm. the Saudis don't like seventy dollars oil. They like eighty dollars is their sweet spot. Certainly ninety is even better. But I think that's what you're going to hear in June. But yes, to your point, I'm I'm a little bit confused on why oil's trading down here at seventy. They keep. You know, one day they come up with the China's not growing as fast story, and then the U.S. demand is declining, and the recession's coming, and demand destruction. I think all that's baloney. Because I think there's plenty of energy demand around the world, not only here but around the world. So I am confused on why oil's trading it at seventy dollars. I certainly expected it to be higher, close to eighty anyway.
1: By the way, you oh, can't buy. A, cool. I got to take a break, but I just, I Sorry. forgot you can't buy a washing machine either. Anyway, right. uh, <laughs> Stephanie Link. Hightower Advisors and Investment Solutions, Kenny Polcari, Case Capital, and uh, Slatestone Wealth. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: We're talking stocks with Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, and Kenny Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors. And chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth, Kenny Polcari, Jay Powell wants to pause interest rates, or so it seems. The meeting is in June. What do you think? So I think
2: they do. I think they raise in June and then pause. I think that's the announcement because they're going to get. They want to get the terminal rate to the five and a quarter, five and a half percent range, which in my mind meets and just kisses where inflation is. Now you can use different numbers, right? The CPI top number is four point nine percent. But X food and energy was five point five point five percent So whichever argument you want to use, they want to get the terminal rate at least above or at uh, the inflationary rate, So which is why I think in June you're going to see a rate increase of 25 basis points. And then they're going to say at this moment, we're going to pause after that. We're going to give it a couple of months. We're going to watch it. We're going to see um, – But they're not taking out further rate hikes off the table. And the pivot idea, that's out for 2023. Anyone who still thinks the Fed's going to pivot 2023, you better be careful what you wish for, because the only reason they're going to pivot is if something falls completely off the edge, or we get some black swan event that we weren't expecting that sends the economy into a complete tailspin.
1: You mean pivot, meaning rates will fall? Pivot
2: meaning cut. 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 Right. They're pricing in 75 basis point cuts by Christmas, which... Makes zero sense to me. I'd be curious to see what Stephanie. What do you think?
1: Yeah, Steph. What's Steph? What's your Fed watch?
8: Yeah, I think that um, I think there's a very good chance they go in June. I'm looking at the Philly Fed uh, regional manufacturing series uh, last week, and the number is still negative, but it was a lot better than than feared, if you will. But the price is paid index went higher and we know where cpi is we know where core pce is we know where unit labor cost is all elevated well above what the fed wants so i think they go but i would say that you're in the eighth or ninth inning in terms of the fed doing what they're going to do um if they do another one after june maybe that's it but to, to kenny's point no i think they stay higher for longer they this inflation story is not going away it's very sticky it has to do with jobs and wages and and uh, and services, which take a long time. Um, we know that there's a lag impact of what the Fed does, right? By about a year, a year and a half or so, and um, and and we're basically just at the year point, right? A year, a little over a year in terms of what they've been doing. So we're going to slow. It'll inflation will eventually come down, but I I don't think it's going to be this year. So no, yeah, no, no. They may pause, but no, no pivot. Right.
1: Does it ma Does it matter that M two money supply is crashing and that? Ed Hyman is now predicting negative in Q three, negative G D P in Q four, negative G D P in Q one. Kenny? I
8: don't know. I don't know how I don't know step. how you go from some something like two and a half percent GDP in the second quarter to all of a sudden negative. Um mm, I, right. I, I think we're gonna slow down. Um, but I think that there's so I think there's still believe it or not, I still think there's a lot of stimulus in the system from all the stuff that we did over the last three years. It takes a long time to get that out of the system. Right. Yeah. So to me, I, I think we I don't know. I'm not i am not i am not sure if it's a recession or a soft landing. I don't think it's a hard one, though. I just don't. All um, right. And again, well, I, I, pl- I point back to the, the consumer.
1: Soft landing link. That's what we're going to do. Soft landing link. Stephanie Link and Ken Paul Carey. Both of you, kids, thank you ever so much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and the other side, we're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peak. and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. This is The
0: Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here doing money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore. Vice President of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and host of the popular show, More Money, right here on WABC, following this show on most of these very same stations, More Money. So, kids, welcome back. Steve Moore, I go to you. The debt talks have broken down. They met for 10 minutes yesterday morning and then walked away. And then they came back at 6.30 for a few minutes and walked away. And there's no new meetings scheduled. And I think talking to people, I got a couple of moles in these talks. Breaking news. Hold on. Wait a second. (laughs) the, The Democrats don't want to cut spending. It's a shocking headline. And I want to get your opinion about this because you are a budget expert. What do you think?
5: Uh, look, I think that the Republicans are holding all the cards here. We talked a little bit about this last week, and, and nothing's really changed in that regard. Uh, the Democrats are behind an eight ball. Americans do want a debt-feeling bill that actually cuts debt. What a concept. And so my worry as a conservative uh, and someone who does believe that we have out-of-control spending is – Uh, I don't want to see the Republicans giving away too much at the negotiating table. They have a very good bill, very sensible, very common sense. Everybody's for drilling. Everybody's for work for welfare. Everybody's for, uh, you know, putting some caps on uh, this enormous uh, increase in spending. So don't don't back away here. Uh, You know, and I, I just want to mention two other things that I think are really important and I don't want to see Republicans giving away at the bargaining table. I'm staunchly against hiring 87,000 new IRA agents. I think it's outrageous. And I think those agents will be weaponized against conservatives and Republicans, as they were under the Obama administration. Um, And also, I I feel pretty strongly about uh, this $300 billion green energy slush fund, which Mm. is completely... um, you know, unnecessary. It's not going to change the, te- temperature, the temperature of the planet, but it's going to funnel massive amounts of money into the uh, cloppers of left-wing interest groups. So I want I want Kevin McCarthy to play his strong hand and uh, not negotiate away the things that are really important here.
1: Well, Scott Perry of the uh, head of the Freedom Caucus, Liz, was on the show. I don't know Thursday night. Uh, he said. Um, that the Republicans have a good plan, as Steve just mentioned, and they should hold tough. Uh, I spoke to Kevin McCarthy Friday afternoon. He intends to hold tough. Trouble is, the Democrats don't... They really don't want work requirements, okay? That's surfacing in this. They don't want permitting other than for renewables. They do not want permitting for um, any fossil fuels. Uh, furthermore, uh They ruled the student loan cancellations uh, off the table, the idea of repealing that off the table. And basically, they don't want tight caps, and they don't want any caps uh, for more than a year or two. They don't want it for 10 years. Um, They want a two-year debt ceiling. In other words, as it turned out in the last couple of days in these meetings with the White House uh, and the um, McCarthyites, the House Republicans... Um, there, there's no agreement really on any key point. The only agreement I can find is a, a COVID clawback, which might come to 50 billion some odd dollars. But that's it. That's yeah. it. So we're here. What they hoped would be a deal this weekend. We're here on Saturday. Now it's Saturday afternoon with nothing. What do you think, Liz? Yeah,
9: yeah I think it's kind of interesting because there were certainly more hopeful comments being made going into the weekend, Kevin McCarthy sounded more positive, at least that's how it was reported. It's a little interesting to know how that shifted. I don't know whether the Democrats finally woke up to polling that they, you know, that didn't sound like they should give in. But let's let's remember the only plan on the table uh, is the Republican plan from the House. Mm -hmm. The Senate hasn't passed anything. So Democrats have yet to come up with their program, And I think, honestly, you can talk about all the issues that Steve and you have raised that obviously are commonsensical. Most Americans agree on it. But let's just look at this in the starkest of terms. We had a bubble of spending caused by the pandemic. That bubble has to go away. We have to go back to the main trend line that we were on before COVID through trillions of dollars, five trillions of dollars, Uh, into the hopper. And I I actually think that's a very simple thing for most Americans to understand, and it's why I think the public has been behind uh, the GOP bill. So I think they just need to keep hammering that, just keep saying, look, we spent a huge amount of money because we had this horrible thing happen. We can't just go on and pretend that's the new trend line because it's not. But
1: specifically,
9: I I think the student loan thing, I, I really am kind of surprised I guess I'm surprised that that has kind of resurfaced as a major sticking point, because that's really not popular with most Americans.
1: Well, it's a sticking point. Um, By the way, your point about pre-pandemic is a good point. It's a very fiscally sound point, but they won't do it. Democrats won't do it. Moreover, they will not. One of the battles going on here is reverting back to the FY 2022 baseline. They won't do that either. And the Democrats do not want a 1% spending cap. They want a higher spending cap, but whatever that is, and there's no number yet, they will only apply it for the first year or two. They will not apply it to 10 years. So you had in the McCarthy package, which is the only game in town, you're both quite right, um... Uh, the four and a half to five trillion dollars worth of savings over ten years. Democrats don't want it. They just don't want it, which is why I say breaking news: Democrats don't want to cut spending. They just don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't know. It may change, but right now there's nothing.
5: Well, so right, right now I'm I, I'm a little bit more radical than even I guess you are, Larry, because you know one of my heroes in the Congress is Rand Paul, and I think mm-hmm. you said this on your show. You know. Back to the 2022 baseline. Let's go back to the 2019 baseline. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. no, I mean, that's if, right. If you, if, you, <laughs> if you do that, you basically balance the budget. And so, you know, my point is that the Republican uh, plan is hardly radical. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. in fact, I would cut a lot more spending than they than they will. The other thing I just wanted to mention: I'm just shocked at how uh, how strongly the Democrats are against work requirements. And I was reading a bunch of stories this morning about this and kept saying, well, gosh, if we have these work requirements, we're going to to remove all these people from public programs. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's the point. And they said, you know, all these people are going to have to, you know, replace their you know, welfare benefits with earnings. You know what? That's what 95% of American families do. Children <laughs> are
1: going to starve. Children are oh, going to starve. A, really the only problem and is yeah. the work requirement is, is, is for people without kids. But put that aside. Yeah, Children exactly. are going to starve.
5: I, I wanted to mention that, that, you know, my problem with those work requirements, so they're kind of mamby-pamby, actually. <laughs> basically, Well, look, I mean, because what we did back in 96 is we actually – put welfare mothers into the workforce and they yeah. actually started working and they started climbing. So I don't know why they would be exempt from this. And the other thing is, you know, in some of the uh, I, I don't know the specifics of all the provisions, but even in some of the Republican plans, it's only 20 hours a week. I don't know, Larry, about you and, and Liz, but I work working a, a lot more than 20 hours a week right now.
1: 20. Yeah. But, I'm, you know, we're all I- working on the weekends here. We're all sick. Look at this. <laughs> Sa- it's Saturday morning and we're working. Huh? I, That's a work. I, think- I want the, Liz, I want the Senate to have work requirements. All of them. They <laughs> yeah, have to come back that. and work, for Christ's sake. They don't work. They're always that way. I want Joe Biden to have a work requirement. <laughs>
9: My, my impression about the work requirements is it's not just the federal law they want to go after. It's state regulations. A lot of states during COVID basically throughout the 20 hours. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's just that that this bill is going after. They want to make sure that all the states, particularly Democrat led states, rescind the sort of supposedly temporary changes they made, uh, in response to COVID. But, but to your point, all of you, look I, again. I think the GOP has to win this in the court of public opinion, and I think the way you do that uh, is is you just make it clear that we are have to kind of roll back the tide of spending that was specifically for COVID. I mean, Democrats, if you remember, passed the 1.9 trillion dollar American Rescue Plan after COVID, after the economy was already rebounding strongly, saying it was still a COVID bill. It wasn't a COVID bill. And I think most people recognize that. So let's get rid of all this garbage that came out of that and the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and let's go back to sensible governing. I mean, I I really do think they can win this. And, Larry, I liked your piece that came out talking about Republicans negotiating against themselves because that's really where they are right now.
1: Well, I think they, um, I, I, I think Scott Perry gave some backbone to the leadership, and they need to just stick with their plan. Just mm-hmm. and the plan, what would the plan do? It would curb spending, as you say. It would stop the frenzy. It would sort of unmask the uh, Biden spending. But at the end of the day, it would reduce inflation and increase growth. You have some yeah. supply side incentives in there. And you have some uh, anti-inflationary uh, incentives in there. It would also make the Federal Reserve's job much easier. Those are macroeconomic points. They probably need to keep making that because, after all, inflation is still sticky. Real yeah. wages are still soft, et cetera, et cetera. And the economy is – I don't know if the economy is going to grow or not. The index of leading indicators is now down 13 straight months. That can't be a good yeah. signal. Yeah. So yeah. for all you know, all those kinds of reasons – but, Steve – you know, they're going to have um, – the X date is going to be moved. I mean, uh, the June 1st thing is going to have to be moved. Sure. Of course. Right? I mean, for two reasons. One's political to leave more room for negotiations. The other one's fiscal. They're not going to run out of money. They're not going to run not. out of money. Right. I mean, that's a silly, right. silly idea. I had right. Mike Faulkner on before, so he was the mm-hmm. assist, uh, one of the assistant uh, treasury secretaries. If they were worried about this stuff – they would slow down or stop the payments to contractors and they'd mm-hmm. start furloughing workers off and they're not doing either of those things so I, you know i think i just i think this is all a lot to do about nothing basically the democrats don't want to cut spending they don't want to do what liz just suggested Uh, and by the way steve you are more radical than i am that's a generic
5: (laughs) (laughs) they don't want to touch funding they don't want to get people off welfare they do want to give people free student loans and and you know forgive you know people and that means the rest of us pay more taxes for that one other quick thing you know what we're not exactly right when we say the democrats don't have a plan they actually do have a plan and it came out in january or february of this year it was the president's budget and i think republicans should be talking about this is Lunacy. I mean, I did a piece for the Wall Street Journal. If you take all those taxes, tax on unrealized capital gains, re- double the capital gains tax, increase the dividend tax, increase the millionaire tax, you're talking about Larry uh, an effective real capital gains tax rate of eighty percent. Who is going to invest in America with these? That's the alternative, folks. Look at what Joe Biden has proposed. This is the most radical budget ever. Put on the table, and I wish Republicans would talk more about that because that's that's the only thing Democrats have put on the table.
1: By the way, in the first meetings of these uh, meetings, the Democrats wanted a wealth tax. That yep. was, okay. yeah, they put it on yeah. the table. Yep, it's and
9: it's, as as there's a very good chance we go into a recession. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there really is kind sort of an in, insistent drumbeat from economists looking at what Jay Powell is doing. A lot of them are incredulous that he keeps raising rates. And now, in fact, Jay Powell in the last 48 hours has begun to sound a little more tempered on this. But this is not the time to have this whopping huge tax increase that just comes with the elimination of the Trump tax cuts.
1: All right. We got to take a quick break. Uh, Liz Peak, Fox News, Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity and More Money right after the show. He's got a show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
0: Larry Kudlow This is the Larry Kudlow Show
9: uh, This is, you know th- The problem is He has literally no idea where to put people I mean, they're trying to put them upstate Upstate doesn't want them Nobody wants them The thing to do is to rescind the sanctuary city designation But they'll never do that
1: Steve Moore, what are we going to do with all these illegal migrants? Seriously I mean, open borders It's non-stop There's no replacement for Title 42. There's no remain in Mexico. There's no wall. I mean, in in a sense, I look at this. I mean, this is a political issue. This is a sovereignty issue. This is a law and order issue. This is a drug issue. This is a cartel issue. But among other things, when these migrants come into the interior of the country, what are we going to do with them? I mean, there's not going to be free welfare and free medical care and education and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a humanitarian problem. In a sense, I feel sorry for them. Hello? Steve Moore, are you there? I I think you have
5: to wonder, Larry, why it is this is happening in the first place. And we had a little cartoon in our hotline the other day about, you know, all the migrants, you know, flowing across the border and there was the Democratic donkey handing out, you know, voter so all, the, all these right. people. So I, I'm usually not very that cynical, but uh, I think a lot of people do believe that this is about winning elections and importing millions of new illegals. I saw a statistic, by the way, the other day. I can't verify its accuracy. But if we stay on this current path we're on, which is letting all these migrants come in by the end of uh, you know Biden's uh, first term, more illegals will have come in than all of the legal immigrants who came in through ellis island that 's how oh, bad it is
1: boy I mean you know uh we need immigrants legal immigrants we need exactly a new legal. legis legal we need new legislation we need right. reforms i mean the they want to come Larry. to they, yeah. <laughs> They want to come to America because America, you know, has prosperity and is a democracy and so forth and so on. I get that. But we should do it legally. And now that we're in a position where millions of them are here, and it's like, Liz, Liz, you know, the Central Park thing is being repeated in various degrees in other major cities across the country. People don't know what to do with them. They don't know where to put them. I mean, even here in New York State... You know, a way, way upstate. I had Claudia Tenney on the show uh, a couple nights ago. She's uh, upstate congresswoman, uh, Syracuse, Rochester sure. area. You know, they don't know what to do with them up there. I mean, it's it's so, a, a hum, it's humanitarian among other things.
9: Well, oh, uh, without a doubt. And and you know, hundreds of people have actually died trying to get to the United States because there has been this open border. This is this a, a travesty, Larry? Um, but one thing that is interesting to me, Hispanics are furious about this i don 't know if you saw Politico or somebody had a spe- uh, a, a piece up recently about biden 's rank and approval ratings amongst Hispanics is plunging Well, mm. my Hispanic cleaning lady came in to me the other day and said, "What are they doing why don 't they stop this because these people, the migrants, are not going to your neighborhood they 're not going to my neighborhood." They are going to all the uh, Latino neighborhoods and causing havoc, havoc in the schools, havoc in the hospitals. I mean, there's a number of things we can talk about on this. I I really do think the majority of Americans have a very common sense approach to immigration. Like Mm -hmm. Canada, we should allow people in who have certain attributes, who can actually improve our country. Canada Mm -hmm. does that. We don't do that at all. That was part of the Trump proposal, as I recall. Yes. And it's something yes. that's very popular. I mean, there are middle-of-the-road kind of common-sense things we can do. What we have to do, though, is stop illegal immigration. Nobody wants it, except Democrats who are looking to future voters. But it's, it's an it's a appalling uh, breakdown of the rule of law, which, by the way, I think we see in all kinds of places. But this is not acceptable.
1: You know, Steve, we need... I'd like to see some GOP people put up a good immigration reform plan. Now, I don't know the House plan. Have you looked at the House plan? I mean, it restores some of the uh, remain in Mexico and the wall. I know that. But I don't know. Does it, did it have any of the things Liz is talking about, you know, where you, you've got to speak English, uh, you've got to show that you can earn a livelihood? You've got to know something about American civics and American history. I mean, that's the kind of there's got to be a positive attribute, positive part of this story. Well,
5: look, you know, I'm very pro-immigrant, as you know, Larry, and I think immigrants really do are, are amazingly beneficial to the United States. But they have to come in lawfully. We have to know who's coming in. And, you know, I work with you and. Brooke Rollins and others in the White House, we had a good immigration plan, Larry. Yeah. Yeah. We had a really great immigration plan. Control the border and then let the people want to come in here and work and, you know, All right. contribute to our society. Why can't we do that?
1: We should. Liz Peek, thank you. Steve Moore, thank you, kids. Steve Moore shows follows this one. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back next weekend.